Hello, and welcome to Intuitive Eating, Health, Weight, and Body Image for Kids. I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, MD, and I'm super excited to be sharing this special five-part podcast series, outlining a simple plan for raising competent eaters. This model is accessible to all and the perfect framework for working through feeding issues and weight worries. It respects children's differing body types, growth patterns, and appetites. It validates and respects differing levels of access to food, nutrient knowledge, and comfort with cooking. It provides a way for you to help your child develop a joyful relationship with food without harming. Please know that this is just a toe dip into the information. There's so much more that we could talk about and a million different ways that problems with feeding in families can manifest. If you need more support, email me, hello at foodfreedombodylove.com and book a session. As always, the information within the podcast is for educational purposes only. I'm not your naturopath yet. (laughs) And so you need to seek appropriate counsel and check in with yourself about what is right for you when it comes to feeding your children. All that said, let's get going. Welcome back. This is Jillian Murphy, your host, and I'm here to welcome you to the fifth and final episode of Intuitive Eating Health, Weight, and Body Image for Kids podcast series. We've already talked about the basic division of responsibility structure, points of resistance when it comes to this model of feeding and eating. We've talked about weight and health and its relationship to nutrition and food. And last episode was all about body talk, how to talk to our children about their bodies and our bodies and other people's bodies. And today in our final episode, I'm excited to dig into the application of the division of responsibility model and how it might look in your home, in your home, in other settings like holidays, parties, restaurants, etc. It's been so much fun to pull this series together, but it's a lot of work too, (laughs) which makes me glad I'm not hosting these podcasts every single week. And instead I'm offering up short series of anywhere from four to sort of six episodes on one topic. And then I'm taking breaks in between to recover and focus on other projects. I think the next series is going to be about healthism and the moralization of food where I'll get into a little bit more about nutritional hand wringing and how it affects food behavior. But if you have other ideas, if you have better ideas, feel free to email me, hello at foodfreedombodylove.com. I would love your input. Anyway, on to today's topic, family meals, as well as permission and discipline. These are the key concepts, the foundation you need to master in order to feed your family and raise body confident, competent eaters. Today's episode is all about taking the theory that we've talked about and turn it into some practical strategies so that you can get started with it today. Let's go. With feeding your child as with feeding yourself, the how of feeding is far more critical than the what or the how much. If you get the how right, the what and how much will fall into place. Okay, so we're gonna focus on the how. 
And the how of feeding goes right back to that first episode where I talked about the division of responsibility. Sorry if I'm like pounding this into the ground, but I think it's really important that we make sure that this is super clear. The division, and and if you haven't listened to the first episodes, I do encourage you to go back and, and go through them because this will be more clear if you've done that. But just as a reminder, the division of responsibility is that parents or guardians, the people who are doing the feeding, are responsible for the what, the when, and the where of feeding. And kids within that structure are responsible for the if, as in if they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. Um, And it's interesting because sometimes when I talk about the division of responsibility and the how of feeding and putting the relationship with food first and making the specifics of food, the nutrients, the balance, the moderation, the good food versus bad food, when I put all of that second and I put the how of feeding, the relationship with feeding first, sometimes it's interpreted that I don't care about healthy food or that I don't care about health, which is absolutely 100% not the case. I am a naturopath as a professional and healthy food is, you know, quote unquote, healthy food is important to me. That's not what I'm saying at all. Um, I'm just most focused most focused, or or maybe I should say first and foremost focused on establishing a solid foundation of food habits and behaviors that are not subject to nutritional fads or feelings, the feelings of the time. This is really important to me because our feelings and the trends around food change constantly. What's considered ideal, what's considered educated, what's considered important changes constantly. And I want to raise children who have a solid foundation of food habits and behaviors that are not subject to nutritional fads or changing feelings. What I focus on most in my work is that which is unchanging. The basics of nutrition and feeding ourselves and our families has not changed in probably more than a hundred years. And yet we get bombarded with more and more information more nutritional information all the time that, you know, we need to know and we need to be worried about. And at the same time that we're getting bombarded with all of the the intricacies of nutrition and all of that information, household food insecurity is a serious problem that affects one in eight Canadian households. Like, hold up. Can we just say that one more time? Household food insecurity is a serious public health problem that affects one in eight Canadian households. There are plenty of families listening to this who may not fall into that category, but there are many families beyond that one in eight who struggle struggle with their grocery bills. I was on a Facebook page many, many years ago when my kids were younger, I want to say at least six years ago, where parents were talking about paying for groceries and how hard it was for them. And they were their parents who were deeply interested in feeding their children well and they were just talking about food budgets and, and what they're trying to buy and what they're, how much they're spending. And when they started talking about their own food bills that they were struggling to pay, I realized that my bill was two to three times higher than what they were spending on food on average. It was shocking to me. It's not like 
my husband and I don't worry about our bills. We do. We have to worry about our bills just as much as anyone else. We're always trying to get our grocery bill down and like make it work. But there were families out there who were feeding their entire family on $100 less a week than I was. And these are invested, engaged parents. And so I just feel like it's all well and good to talk about superfoods and clean eating and soaking grains and other what I call lofty or ideal food goals or conversations. I think that that's fine, but I personally like to present information that can be used and executed by as many people as possible. And so I start with the how, because even if you are a family that has to rely on mac and cheese or less expensive packaged foods or food donations or whatever that might look like, you can raise competent eaters with good body image. You can do it. The how we feed is the most important. And then if eating less sugar is important to you, if eating less gluten or no meat or whatever is important to you, you are in charge. Within this model, you are in charge of the what. If you have the resources, be it time or money, or I call it emotional bandwidth or interest, you get to make the decisions. And it's absolutely possible to run a household with meals that are filled with predominantly home-cooked, local, unprocessed whole foods, and simultaneously allow your children to eat play food and learn how to manage themselves with all of the available foods that exist outside the home. These things are not mutually exclusive. You can care about superfoods and clean eating and nutrition if that's within your realm of resources. And also teach your children to manage all of foods. In order to do that, though, I think it's important to remember a few things. Number one, we don't need to talk critically. In order to teach children to be competent eaters and to manage themselves around food, I think it's important to remember that we don't need to talk critically about food relentlessly. Our children will learn by sitting at the table and modeling our behavior. You put what you want to feed them on the table day after day after day. And that is what they will learn about nutrition. Experience with food will teach them more than our words ever could. And speaking critically about food constantly tends to cause the opposite effect that we want it to have. It tends to push children toward those foods instead of teaching them to manage them in a reasonable way. And so some of the things that we're going to talk about today are like holidays and parties and you know, camping or weeks away, any of the exceptions to the, to the times when we're within the structure of our home or the structure of a meal at a table, um, none of those things, none of those exceptions can ruin all of the lessons that we model at the table day after day after day with our children. I think it's also to remember that um, if we do want to educate about nutrition, with more than just modeling. And I think that this can happen way later than we think it should, like like 10, 11, 12, and later. We want to have those talks away from eating. So it doesn't feel like food is being judged while children are eating. So you can talk about nutrition, but, but let's take it away from the table and really include it in other pieces of education or other places away from when kids are actually putting bread in their mouth to give them you know, an education about gluten and lectins and, and 
you know, making them feel bad about what they're actually putting in their mouth. I think it's also to remember that we need to, in order to really truly present a balanced and moderate view of food, that yeah, we get to decide what goes on the table, we model that and the kids eat it. But if we really want them to be competent eaters that can manage themselves around foods, we want to make use of play food properly. So we want to take those foods that are considered forbidden for us or within our families or foods that are considered unhealthy, quote unquote, in our families and find a way to make use of them properly so that kids learn to manage themselves around all foods. And I'll talk about that in a minute as well. And lastly, I think it's super important that if we want to raise competent eaters that manage themselves well, we get to choose what we put on the table and the when and the where, but it's equally important that we're not coming at feeding with a lot of food fear, worries, and nutritional hand-wringing. And that is a big, it's a big topic. And it's something that, that I think every parent should begin to explore in themselves you know, how am I coming to the table? So yes, I'm in charge of putting what I want on the table. And I choose to put, you know, vegetables and gluten-free grains and protein on the table. And these are my beliefs around food. And that's fantastic. But I do think that we need to dig in and question the motivation for our food beliefs. Is it coming from a place of balance and, and security And self-assurance or is it coming from a place of fear and nutritional hand-wringing because that comes through as I said more than our words ever will our kids are modeling us and they're feeling our energy around food and so this is this is a really important point when it comes to the division of responsibility you get to put whatever you want on the table but coming to the table with a lot of fear is will impact the feeding relationship and, and so around that topic, I just want to say a couple of little things before I, before I move on here. The first is that in order to not come to the table with food fears and worries and nutritional hand-wringing, I think we have to know that we don't have to come to the table in that way. It's sort of in fashion right now to talk so badly about certain foods, specifically processed foods. And if you don't agree with that kind of conversation or you haven't thought that hard about processed foods, there's this feeling that you're somehow uneducated or not in the know. And I've heard this expressed in so many circles, including my children's school and within naturopathic circles and holistic nutritionist circles. Like if you're not shitting all over processed foods, you somehow don't care about nutrition. And That's absolutely not the case. You can 100% want to raise healthy eaters and feed them well, and you can be totally neutral when it comes to processed and or play foods. The other thing is understanding that too much of the nutritional hand-wringing and the worrying and the food fear is detrimental. I've covered that in other episodes, so I won't belabor it. But just a reminder of the fact that you are the one choosing and preparing and serving the food your child eats most of the time. And so whatever your food beliefs are, what's important to you, whether it's cultural, political, or just around health, you can teach that through just serving it up in your home. And you can do all of it without fear-mongering or controlling. 
On the other side of it, if you're in a place that I talked about earlier where budget is really tight or food security um, or food accessibility is less secure, if you aren't in a space to uphold lofty food ideals or goals, you're in luck because you don't have to. All you need to do is get your family as often as possible to sit down together at a table and eat. Eat whatever it is is available to you in that moment. Which brings us to the first point about, of this podcast around the, di- the division of responsibility, which is that meals are the bottom line. Meals are the bottom line. Feel guilty if you must, but at least feel guilty about the right thing. If you have children, you absolutely have to feed them three meals and anywhere from one to three snacks a day. Anything less amounts to neglect. That's an excerpt from Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family by Ellen Satter. The division of responsibility feeding model is founded upon permission and discipline. The discipline of family meals and regularly scheduled snacks and permission for children to manage food and to learn how to experiment with how much and if they eat within that structure. I will say that someone noted within my Facebook group, you know, they kindly noted that when I talked about the discipline within this feeding model, she found it was moralizing. And at first I was like, what? (laughs) I didn't say anything about good food or bad food or getting it right. But what I realized is that getting meals on the table is hard. It really is. Like having family meals and regular snacks is hard. And also when it comes to parenting, almost anything can make us feel judged. But I love that quote because I feel like it takes us right back to the beginning, right back to basics. It strips all the junk away and basically explains what I tried to explain to the person in my group that I hope that suggesting we feed our children regularly and reliably isn't moralizing, that it's just like a basic requirement for care. Do we need to sit down and eat every single meal and snack at the table as a family? No, no. I typically encourage parents to make one meal a day at the table as a group the priority. And I understand that even that can feel challenging and hard in the environment that we live in. So I get that it's hard, but I love that quote. Like, if you're going to feel guilty, you know, feel guilty about the right thing. Not whether the kids have gluten or dairy or too much sugar. Let's get back to the very basics. Are we eating together as a family? That is what has been shown to be the most effective thing in terms of raising competent eaters who are resilient in all areas of their life, not just when it comes to food, right? And so if we're going to feel guilty, if we're going to feel like we need to get it together and make a change in some area, Let it be around meals at a table as a family. That has to be the priority. There is no point in stressing about what kids eat if there's no structure. If you're going to put energy into anything when it comes to food, put it here. 
meals are the bottom line over and over and over again. The family meal has been shown to be so important and fundamental to good outcomes with our children across the board, as I just said, not just when related to eating and nutrition. So there it is. Meals are the bottom line. You purchase the food you want and can afford. You prepare it. You serve it. You try as a priority to sit down and eat it together. And regardless of what you're eating, with you know, regardless of what you're eating, when you sit down with a neutral to positive attitude toward the food you consume, you are raising competent eaters. Um, And so now that that's established as kind of like the bottom line, like this is our priority is to get food on the table and to occasionally, as in ideally at least once a day, sit down and eat with our kids, that meals are the bottom line of this model. If we understand that, then now let's get into some of the details of orchestrating the family meal. Meals provide the backbone for family life by giving a reliable context for the work of the family, nurturing children, helping individual growth, and easing relationships with the outside world. The day-in, day-out routine of structured, sit-down family meals and snacks reassures children that they are loved and that they will be provided for. Children are a captive audience who absolutely depend on us to provide for them. They feel afraid when parents are casual about feeding them or don't let them have enough to eat. It is difficult for us to know or remember what a child's absolute dependence on grown-ups feels like. To get a sense for that childhood dilemma, consider this story told by an experienced outfitter who equipped groups to whitewater raft through the Grand Canyon. It can be hard for our guests, he observed because for at least a week, maybe two, they are entirely dependent on us. We used to get a lot of whining and worrying from them. Had we thought of this or that, what if this or that happened? We also had a lot of feeding frenzies. They ate as if every meal were their last. Finally, we hit on the solution. Now, the first night out, we make this enormous, delicious meal. We encourage seconds and thirds, and we keep urging until everyone protests that they've had enough. And then, in full sight of everyone, we bury the leftovers. After that, he grinned, they're fine. Not nearly so much whining or worrying, and no more food frenzies. The message was clear. We will take care of you. Not only do we have enough, but we have more than enough. In providing the guests with elaborate reassurance about their food, He provided them with reassurance that they would be provided for. Think about it. That story is about adults who know they will get off that river in a week or two. What must it be like for a child who anticipates being that dependent forever? I love that reading from Secrets of a Healthy, of Feeding a Healthy Family by Ellen Satter. I think it really helps us understand that we need to be regular and reliable when it comes to food to allow our children the safety of sec- and security of knowing that we can and will provide for their needs. And then within that structure of regular meals and snacks, they get, to, they get the autonomy of choosing what they eat and 
being able to recognize when they're full because they're not in a frenzy to just get food in. And this also applies as we get into with the types of food, right? And when specific foods are denied, it can also cause food, cause food frenzies. But back to meals, let's talk about the first thing we need to chat about when it comes to the details of orchestrating a family meal. First of all, number one, just make it happen. Is it easy to prioritize family meals? The answer is nope, nope. It's definitely not. It is way more exciting and glamorous and valued within our society right now to be running from one activity to the next with our kids um, and or the realities of our work schedules overwhelm us. But if it is a priority, and I think that we've established that it needs to be a priority, you can and will make it happen. I have worked with families with the most unusual and hectic of schedules and found a way to make it happen. If you're really struggling with it, email me, hello at Food Freedom Body Love. Let me know what's going on and I'll see if I can help you out. I've said it before in this series, but just as a reminder, children with family meals do better in all areas, nutritionally, socially, academically. They're resistant to dieting and eating disorders and weight gain that's not natural for their bodies drug and alcohol abuse and early sexual activity. And so this meal that you get on the table once a day is presumably more important than any tutor and any extracurricular, any after-school activity, any social opportunity. There is literally nothing more important than this. So recognizing that it's hard, recognizing that it may be a constant work in progress, absolutely. But bottom line, make it happen. Number two, set yourself up for success, right? (laughs) Getting food on the table is a labor of love, truly, every single day. It is a labor of love. And so we want to set you up for success when you have family meals. First of all, does it have to be at your dining room table? No, it could be your table. It could be at a table at a restaurant. It could be a blanket on a floor. It's just us sitting down with a relative amount of focus on our food and the ability to connect and chat with one another. It's not a meal if the TV is on, if people are on their phones, or if people are reading around the table. Otherwise, you can make a family meal almost anywhere. Make it a positive experience. The meal serves not just to feed us nutritionally, but also mentally, emotionally. It's a chance to connect, to check in, and to chat. Avoid really emotional, heavy topics when at the table, you know, trying to ply our children to get their homework done or reminding them of all the to-dos after they're finished eating. Try to stay away from too difficult of conversations and nutritional lecturing, please. I talked about that earlier. Let's stay away from nutritional lecturing at the table. Keep the conversation fairly positive and not always focused on food. Ask specific questions. I don't know about you, but if I say, how was your day? Or what did you guys do today? We get like nothing. (laughs) So try to ask really specific questions. What did you do at recess today? Who did you play with, you know, after at, at lunch recess? Ask really specific questions and listen. Talk about your family, old stories, something amazing that happened at work. In our family, we used to do Rose and Thorn, which is a game where Um, kids can say the best part of their day and the worst part of our day. And it was pretty good. It definitely gets people talking, but our girls can sort of be drama queens, which I think is developmental and age appropriate and would have the tendency to focus on 
the the thorn, the worst part of the day. And then it would turn into this whole devolvement of like all the drama that happened at school. And like, you know, they're, it's the end of the day and they're tired anyway. And all of a sudden they're not eating because they're going into all of the intricacies of their friendships. So we stopped that. <laughs> and <laughs> we now sometimes just do, th- or sorry, we sometimes just do rows or we'll just ask them what the best part of their day was or the funniest part of the day. And that's enough to get the conversation going and really focus on the good. And I'm not saying we don't care about when our kids are struggling. Obviously, we do. For me, it was just more about not letting every meal turn into, you know, obsessively talking about the thing that didn't go right in the day. And then obviously, above all else, let's keep our phones away from the table. Again, it's a family meal, but if the TV's on, if we're on our phones, if we're reading books or newspapers and we're not actually connecting and chatting, we lose a lot of the, the nutritional value of the meal. There's a lot to be, or the nourishing aspect of the meal is what I'm trying to say. When it comes to food and the family meal, you may be listening to this series because you want to improve your nutrition, which I love. And I think that, that, that we are doing it but we're doing it in a slightly different way than you might have expected. And the first thing that I generally recommend for individuals is just to be realistic with who we are as humans and what we value and what we enjoy. Start this process with whatever foods you're currently eating and your kids are enjoying. And just start by getting regular meals and snacks in place. And then once that structure is in place, if you feel motivated, If you have the resources and the means, then you can begin to look more carefully at the components of your meals and snacks. Very generally speaking, when people are unsure about what to put on the table when it comes to food, I offer up this. Try to include a protein and a fat and a carb at every meal and most snacks. That's it. Protein, fat, carb at every meal and most snacks. Basically, any belief, religious, ethical, or otherwise around food can fit into that. Beyond that, I'm not telling you exactly what to serve. Nope, 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 not gonna do it. Because those directives, at this point in the learning, do more harm than good. It takes us away from what the first priority is, which is just feeding our children reliably and sitting down to eat as often as possible. So start with the structure and the foods you like. What feels good and comfortable to you? Getting meals and snacks on the table regularly is hard freaking work, and you are way more likely to stick with it if you start in a place that A, feels comfortable for you, B, feels enjoyable for you, and that tastes really good and satisfies you. So serve up the food that you find enjoyable and satiating. If your children have been picky or fussy in the past, or you've succumbed to being a short order cook and you're worried that they won't eat what you put on the table when you choose what you like, then just make an effort to put one thing on the table at every meal you know your kids will eat. So for example, last week we made these totally gorgeous Thai cauliflower rice bowls. It was cauliflower rice with cabbage, lots of other vegetables, coconut milk, spices, and then we piled um, uh, toasted cashews and lemon and cilantro and sesame seeds and all kinds of yummy stuff on top. And I knew that it wasn't going to be a favorite 
with the kids. They surprise me every now and then. And so I try not to make any assumptions, but the cabbage family in particular can be quite bitter for children. And so all I did was made up a huge pot of brown rice and I served that on the table as well because my kids love brown rice. I also kept some of the veggies out of the the cauliflower rice mixture and just threw those on the table sort of separate as well. So there were some of the components like uh, we topped it with like mango and cucumber and I kept some of those things separate so that the kids could build their own bowl. I do the same if I make up one of the things that my husband and I love more than anything is a beautiful salad with protein, but, but really complex salads can be hard for children. So sometimes I'll pull it apart and we'll build the salad at the table and the kids can make that choice themselves. I often use bread and Caesar salad if I'm serving a new soup or a soup that might be spicy or have some interesting flavors to it. When we take the time to just make sure that there's something on the table that kids will eat, then we don't need to worry about them getting enough. As I said, bread is is one of the staple things that bread and brown rice, I'm just trying to think off the cuff here if there's anything else, bread, brown rice, and like chopped up fruits and raw vegetables are often things that I throw on the table if I'm worried and I don't talk about it and I don't make it a big deal I put exactly what I want to serve for dinner on the table and then I throw these other things out without talking about it or mentioning it just so that the children have enough choice. And I don't do all of it every time. I do some of it and um, I am more likely to put those foods out if I know it's something the children are going to have a really tough time with. As Ellen Satter says, familiar accepted food reassures your child that he can be successful with the meal. The unfamiliar, not-so-favorite food gives him opportunities to learn. Your child will, of course, eat eat what's familiar and favorite. He may eat four or five slices of bread for eight dinners in a row, but have faith he will tire of even his favorite food and be braver about sneaking up on new food and learning to like it if he knows he has something he likes to fall back on. And I have seen that to be true, not just with my children, but with the children I've worked with clinically. You don't need to limit your menu to food your children already happily accepts, but don't be sadistic in your menu planning either, right? If you know that it's a fairly complex, mature palate for your child, like I mentioned before, including a lot of the cabbage family or things that are more bitter or spicy, then just make sure that there's something on the table that you know your child can dig into. At the same time, I don't think we need to underestimate our kids. We can put ethnic food on the table or spicy food or highly flavorful food. I mean, it's only ethnic for us, right? In other cultures, that's their staple fare and the kids in those cultures eat it. And so we don't need to underestimate kids. We can put these foods on the table. But as I mentioned before, if I'm going to put a spicy Indian dish on the table, I also try to put a softer creamy butter chicken with some rice and naan and allow the children to experiment and and choose what they want to eat within that structure of the family meal. And I don't just do this within each meal. I also take it into account when I'm planning our menu for the week. So for example, I'll push our kids with some trickier, more novel or unexpected foods a couple of nights a week. And then I also try to take into account things that they just truly love and get that on the table several times a week. 
uh, there's nothing I love more than how excited they get when it's taco night or, you know, there's a very specific soup that they love that they know is being served. It's so fun and rewarding. And so not just within the meal, making sure that there's something that kids feel a little bit comfortable with and, and in a place where they can have some success with it, but also within the week, the menu plan for the week, push them in some ways and then create comfort in others. So we establish the structure. We get food on the table we enjoy. We try to make our meals balanced in the most basic sense. We follow the division of responsibility. (laughs) And then the realities of eating with children plays itself out. (laughs) And it's very, very easy to get sucked in when our kids start to play out certain behaviors at the table. Just remember, don't get antsy. Don't get pushy. Maintain the division of responsibility. Put the food on the table and then stay in your lane, step back and let your kids do the if and how much of eating. Which brings me to my next point, which revolves around understanding normal childhood meal behavior and then also how to manage behaviors that fall out of that normal range. So things that feel especially challenging or negative and really just make you want to throw the division of responsibility out the window. From Ellen Satter, just because you are on the side of the angels in maintaining the division of responsibility and feeding does not mean that your child will enthusiastically get with the program. Parents often cross the lines of the division of responsibility and feeding because their child's eating behavior triggers controlling or permissive feeding behavior. Remember, your job is feeding. His, hers, or theirs is eating. That's all we need to remember. Okay, so generally, for the most part, If we maintain the division of responsibility and if children come to the table hungry and there's something on the table they enjoy, they'll sit their bums down and they'll eat. But then as they get full, they squirm. They want to leave the table. And that's fine. We can let them. We can teach them to sit near us and play as we finish our food. We can teach them to respect our time to eat as much as we respect their time to eat. Beyond that, though, there are many negative behaviors that can show up and I could never cover them all. Like there are so many negative behaviors that can show up. And so instead, I think what I'm going to do within this podcast series is just start with the basics around what's normal childhood behavior. And then if you recognize that the issue that you're struggling with is beyond that, if you are still having trouble, contact me and we can work through it on a one-on-one basis because there's just too many different ways that kids learn that they can take control or start to manipulate mealtimes. So for the most part, you maintain the division of responsibility. In a minute, I'm just going to, in just one second here, I'm going to talk about the normal childhood behaviors that show up at other meals that we just have to like hold hard and fast through and manage and deal with because it's part of development. Um, and again, if you feel like your child is doing something that is really outside of these normal mealtime behaviors for kids and you're struggling with it, contact me and let me know. Okay, so accepting normal child eating behaviors. And I'm going to read this this portion of 
Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family right from the book from Ellen Satter. Okay. If you are like most parents, you want your child to eat more fruits and vegetables, to drink his milk and to eat some of everything that is put in front of him. He will and he does, but he does it in quirky ways apparent only to the educated eye. To most parents, it all looks like food rejection. Does this sound like your child? He looks at the food. I'm saying he, by the way, through this, but it could apply to he, her, or them. He looks at the food and doesn't want it on his plate. He watches you eat it, but doesn't eat it himself. Sometimes he allows the serving dish by his plate. He wants a small amount on his plate, but doesn't eat it. After many meals, he tastes it and then takes it back out again and again. After many tastes and takeouts, he swallows. That means he likes it. After that, he likes it and eats it. Sometimes. Even if he likes everything on the table, he doesn't eat some of everything that's put before him. He eats one or two or three foods. Another meal or another day, he eats a different set of one or two or three foods. All of these are normal child eating behaviors. If your list includes unacceptable mealtime behaviors such as whines and cries, refuses to eat, complains and says yuck, or begs for different foods, you are crossing the lines of the division of responsibility in feeding. Children behave poorly when they are pressured. The key word to describe children's eating is erratic, or picky, if you will. Children's normal pickiness is discouraging for parents who interpret the whole routine as food rejection, but it's not. It's a child's way of sneaking up on new foods and learning to like it. Research says that it takes children 10 to 20 neutral exposures before they eat a food. Neutral exposure means it shows up on the table again and again with no pushing or prodding, no persuading or cheerleading, no bribes or nutrition lessons, and no little lectures about starving children anywhere. Elizabeth Jackson, reviewer and mother of three nearly grown children, recalls that in the entire seven years between ages three and ten, one of her sons wouldn't allow tomato sauce on his spaghetti. It was the same homemade sauce that he happily ate on his pizza. Reviewer Pam Estes tells of a mother who actually counted her number of offerings. After a while, she called Pam. It's been 20 tries, she reported, and she still hasn't tasted it. What do I do now? I don't know, confessed Pam, but if you like it, keep having it. Months later, the mother called again. 36, she announced. Pam's answer was exactly right. I hope that after running her experiment, the mother stopped counting. For cautious children, it takes years of neutral food exposures, but eventually they learn to eat most foods. I love that excerpt so much and the frame of reference that so many behaviors that look like food rejection are actually really developmentally appropriate and part of that experience, that learning process of learning to sneak up on food and to try them and to eventually like them. And that we just need to keep serving these foods and later rather than sooner, our children will most likely eventually eat them. And again, there are lots of other ways that um, that truly negative behaviors can display themselves beyond what's normal and appropriate for development. And if that's happening for you, um, just reach out and let me know and I'll see if I can help you sort through that. So one of the last things I want to talk about is play food and how to use play food to your benefit, how to use it properly within 
the feeding competency model. Play food is what I call the forbidden foods of a family. And those foods can be really different from family to family. What we consider to be off limits or bad or unhealthy can be really different from family to family. So I don't specify what they are because they're so different for different people. But learning to help your child manage these foods is incredibly important so that they don't end up sneaking off to eat them in a frenzy or in a compulsive way or so that they don't become preoccupied with them. And the best way to do this is to make these foods a regular, routine, and neutral part of your family's eating experience. Regular, routine, neutral part of your family's eating experience. I say it twice because it's so counter what most healthy eating recommendations are, which is like, this is how to limit these foods. This is how to moderate these foods. And I think that, you know, the reality is that sometimes the outcome of how much of these play foods get put on the table can almost look the same. But when we're coming at it from a place of like, we have to limit it and we have to manage it and moderate it and control it, what happens is there's a lot more crossing the lines within the division of responsibility than if we approach putting these foods on the table, not as like an exception to the feeding relationship model, but as a part of it, then I think that we come at it in a more positive, neutral learning way. So getting it on the table regularly, routinely, and neutrally is important. What does that look like? What does that actually look like? So first of all, let's talk about dessert. And remember, you as a parent are responsible for the what of the get, what foods get put on the table every night. And so you can define dessert how you want, but I do encourage dessert to include um, regularly some, you know, some nights for us dessert can be fruit and yogurt or an apple or a peach or something. But I do encourage parents to not always make it that, to allow dessert to, to routinely or regularly be something that's higher in sugar and fat because that's how they learn to manage those foods. But you don't have to have it every night. Dessert does not have to be every night, um, or you can have it every night and you get to decide what the dessert choice is. And if you're going to serve dessert, when you do do it after dinner, everyone gets it. That's the bottom line. It's not a reward. It's not something they earn by eating other foods. It doesn't put food at odds with each other. You allow every person at the table to have a serving of dessert regardless of what else they eat. And it's one serving. And the reason we stick to one serving at dessert is because dinner is a time when we encourage children to experiment with food and it's a really highly nourishing part of the day when they're not at school, they're not running from one thing to the next and we're trying to get them to sometimes eat foods that are more novel, sometimes get more vegetables into them. And dessert obviously has a bit of an advantage over vegetables because it is high in sweetness and high in fat often. And so the way that we um, keep it within its place at dinner is we just allow one serving. If they eat one serving of dessert, they're still gonna be hungry. Um, some hardcore Ellen satirists even put dessert right on the table. I mean, if they're going to be allowed to have it anyway, why not just put it right on the table? They eat it first. Who cares? No big deal. They're still going to be hungry. It's only one serving. And then they can move on to these other foods knowing they've had their dessert. We've done that before. And it really is no big deal. Um, often when my parents come to visit, we serve everything up family style and my mom will just throw dessert on the table. And it really it really does not interfere, believe it or not, with the eating experience. More often than not, though, we save dessert until the end. Everyone at the table knows that they can have a serving. No one is feeling pressured to get to dessert because they're worried they're not going to have it. And they get a serving of it. 
Snacks are a little bit different because snacks are a little bit less nutritionally intense, meaning um, it's a place where there can be a little bit more experimentation and learning for children. And so for me, it means occasionally, like once or twice a week, making sure that there's a snack that is high sugar and or high fat and making sure that there's a good amount of it so that children can eat until they're content and leave it. Kind of like in that story that I read about earlier where um, people didn't feel comfortable until they knew they could have as much as they wanted and there was some left over. So instead of serving up one small cookie, it's like just put a plate out. And you can also put a plate, like anytime I do that, I often put a plate out of fruits and vegetables or something, a bowl of grapes. I let the kids choose. I let them eat as much as they want and then leave it behind. And again, snacks are just a little bit different because they're a little bit less there's a little bit less nutritional weight to them. And so we can really allow children to learn and play at that time. Other ways that I get into this is um, just occasionally, regularly, and I say occasionally, regularly, it seems counterintuitive. But what I mean is, you know, maybe once a week, sometimes once a month, I can't quite tell you because I don't think too hard about it. I'll just randomly throw a play food on the table with a meal. So it could be a Saturday at lunch and I'll serve up sandwiches and I'll just put a big bowl of potato chips on the table too. I don't talk a lot about it. I don't make a big deal about it. It's just served on the table neutrally and the kids know they can have it. And there's this just interesting thing that happens when it becomes a regular part of eating and those foods don't hold as much weight or as much power as they would as if they were identified as something that was taboo and limited and to be managed and controlled. And again, over and over and over again, the research shows that when we, um, as parents, choose to expose our children to these foods in a routine and regular way, they learn to manage them. They're good at it. And they don't become addicted or compulsive with these foods. They actually incorporate them in a really healthy, balanced, and moderate way that we want them to. That's how they end up in a place of moderation. And the ideas or the ways in, we wit, in which we try to make food look moderate actually push children and adults, let's be honest, too, the other direction. And they end up eating um, even more of these foods than they would normally. The next question becomes, though, what do we do um, when we're outside of the home? So when we're outside of the home, we're at parties, holidays, restaurants. And the first thing I'm going to do is just separate restaurants out. I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about holidays and parties first. Um, for the most part, I'm going to assume that parties and holidays are the exception to the rule. This is really important because if they're not the exception to the rule, if you have parties and holidays many times a week or tw like every week, whatever it looks like, then you probably need to do that reshuffling of priorities that we talked about when we talked about making meals important. Because just by the nature of what a party typically is, it's very difficult to control the environment and stay within your lane when it comes to the division of responsibility. Almost impossible, which is why at parties and on holidays like Christmas Day at someone else's house, I just generally recommend that we let go and let it be an amazing, incredible, wonderful learning opportunity for children where they get to like manage themselves and have fun and choose the foods we want. And knowing that these are the exception to the rule and they're not family meals, we can just let them have fun and we don't have to worry because it will the, those exceptions to the rule will never outweigh or outdo the lessons 
or undo, sorry, the lessons that happen regularly day after day after day at our table, right? And so they're just for fun. And there's no point in fighting with your kid because I don't know if you've ever watched someone fight with their kid at a party to try and make them eat something, but it is, you know, it's a losing battle if you've ever done it yourself. And I know I've done it. I've absolutely done it where I'm like, no, just eat this first. And it's just craziness. And so I generally just say it's a learning opportunity. And and like I said, if you find that the parties are four or five nights a week, you have a couple of options. Number one, rearrange your priorities in terms of like just sometimes we just have to say no like sometimes for young children especially it's just too chaotic of a schedule in general it's not just the food we need to worry about in those situations it's also an overly scheduled complicated schedule like like routine that becomes the problem in the grand scheme of things holidays and parties are relegated to relatively short exceptional periods of time. There are two holidays, Halloween and Christmas. It could be different for you, but I do think like whether you celebrate Christmas or not, that holiday season, the December holiday season, those are two periods of time that can be a bit more prolonged. So I want to talk about them um, outside of regular, just like birthday parties and, and family celebrations or one day holidays like Easter or Thanksgiving. So I am recording this on November 12th. So we're 12 days out of Halloween. And on the way to school today, my kids realized, they were like, oh my God, we forgot about our Halloween candy. So they have bags that they've been managing. There's bits of Halloween candy and chips left in those bags. They did forget. They did forget to pick some items to put in their lunch today, which they've been doing for the past two weeks, not even, week and a bit for school. And they've been able to choose a serving of those foods for dessert. Um... They did forget today. They also forgot all weekend. They didn't realize. So essentially, they have been managing their Halloween candy and there was maybe 10 days before they started to completely forget that the candy existed. There was 10 days of letting them choose as much candy as they want for snacks and just serving for dessert on the nights that we had dessert after dinner, which we don't every single night. But on the nights that we did, they could just choose a serving of candy. And within those 10 days, there was no binging or preoccupation. And within 10 days, it's already becoming forgotten. So you can trust that within your home, if you stick with a division of responsibility and you stay in your lane and the parameters, that kids will manage themselves and it will not be as bad as you think. Christmas, I'm going to say Christmas, but what I really mean is just that December holiday season um, is also prolonged and, and it tends to look a little bit different because it's not like, you know, Halloween is just like you leave your house one time and then you come home with all of the candy. It all happens on one day, but then the effects are prolonged. The, the December holiday season tends to be different in that it's three to four, sometimes more weeks of, of parties, events outside of the home that are often filled with play foods. And, there's a few ways you can manage it. One, you can go bananas. <laughs> it's a totally normal way. I shouldn't say normal, common thing to happen when there's a lot of play foods around. As parents just go bananas, they they leave their lane completely and they start trying to control everything. And again, it's a losing battle with statistically bad results at the end of it. What I recommend my patients do within the holiday season is they manage it by staying even more firmly in their own lane. And what I mean by that is, yes, 
maybe within, there may be a week over the December holiday season where you're out at, let's say, three parties over the course of a week or three events or maybe even four. All I do is then when we are in our home, when I'm making breakfast, when I'm packing lunches, when I'm making snacks, when I'm serving dinner, I am more conscious without talking about it with the kids, without making a big deal out of it to serve nutritionally dense foods at those times. And if you remember that within the division of responsibility, we would normally be regularly exposing our kids to some play food. We can do a lot of balancing by just cutting that out inside our home, knowing that they're going to have the opportunities to manage it outside of the home. Like there's plenty of opportunity to manage play food outside of the home this week. I do not need to provide you with that opportunity, right? Regularly I do, but this week I don't need to. Or for the next three weeks, I don't need to. So breakfasts are a little more nutritionally dense and tight. So instead of making chocolate chip pancakes once or twice a week, we're just like, nope, we're having oatmeal or like toast and fruit and eggs. You know, we're just going to keep it a little more straight arrow. And again, I don't need to lecture the kids about it. They don't even need to be in on the decision because that's my responsibility. And so that's how I take charge of it and how I encourage my patients to to take charge of it. Um... But like I said, for the most part, holidays are a day, parties span one meal of one day. And again, there's nothing within those events that can undo the health of your children because you are day after day after day providing them with nutritionally dense food and feeding them um, in in an appropriate way. Restaurants, like I said, fall into a slightly different category Um, because they can be, they can fall into the category of the exception, the party, the holiday, or they can fall into the category of the family meal, depending on how often your family eats out. It's estimated that about 70% of families eat out at least once a week. And so if it's once a week, I consider it more of a party or a holiday and I don't, it's one meal of an entire week. Um, I feel like people should just allow their children to choose what they want Um, make sitting down and eating together and the enjoyment and socialization of that meal the most important thing and the nutritional quality second. But if you're a family that eats out a lot, like many meals of the week, um, I'm going to give you some simple guidelines to follow. Again, only if this isn't the exception to the rule, only if eating in restaurants, like you're in a, there, there are families that live in bigger cities, for example, where eating in restaurants is where they eat their family meals. And so in those circumstances, you need to be a little bit more involved in the food choices because otherwise your child ends up, if your children are eating out the majority of the time and they're picking what they want to eat every single time, then they're essentially taking over the what within the division of responsibility, which is the parent's job. And again, occasionally that's fine. But when that becomes the norm, that's when we start to see feeding problems surface. So simple guidelines only for those who eat at restaurants many meals of the week, which is try to make sure that your children have at least three food groups on their plate. And this happens relatively naturally with a lot of food choices. Like if they order a taco, there's like a shell and there's some meat or some veggie protein and then there's veggie on top of that. Or they order a pizza, which is like a crust with some sauce and veggies and cheese. They order a hamburger And they could have a salad on the side or some chopped up vegetables or some French fries. That usually fulfills the three food group rule. 
But just being aware of trying to get three food groups on the plate. And again, that's just to help balance out the nutrition without having to adhere to any strict nutritional rules. Try to keep one fried food per meal the max. Meaning if you're eating at restaurants a lot, you know, they can have chicken fingers or fries. They can't have both because they're both deep fried. Um, So that might look like chicken fingers and chopped up vegetables or a salad, or it could be fries with some steamed vegetables or raw veggies and some bread, something like that. You want to also limit sweets to one per meal in these situations, meaning if they're going to have a sweet drink, then they don't have dessert. Or if they're going to have dessert, they don't have a sweet drink. And when it comes to desserts and restaurants, I just treat it exactly the same way we do at home. Sometimes we say yes, sometimes we say no. I'm in charge of making that decision. Um, But if they do have dessert, I try to keep it child-sized because restaurants don't always do that. And so if they come out with a pie that's the size of your head, then you may want to cut a slice, a little slice off and give it to your child in a child-sized portion. And don't forget you can order off of the adult menu. We often get stuck into thinking that we have to order off of these kids' menus that are really um, limited in what what's available for children, but they can eat adult food. So don't forget that you can do that as well to expand the nutritional density and quality of the meal. But again, I only really encourage these simple guidelines for families that eat out frequently. All right, so in summary... We need to just prioritize making meals happen, understanding how important that is and that it needs to be a priority on our to-do list, even above extracurricular activities and exercise and tutors and everything, right? And it doesn't mean that it's not hard. It is hard. It doesn't mean it's going to happen every meal of every day. But if we can try to get at least one meal of the day at a table Um, We're setting our kids up for a great relationship with food and really great outcomes in all areas of their lives. Um, Trying to make those meals when we're at the table as positive as they can be and to set our children up for success by understanding that, yep, we're the ones that make the decision about what foods go on the table and we don't need to cater to our children's needs, but we can be conscious of what they like to eat. And we can set them up for success by making sure that there's generally something on the table that they can eat and enjoy without a lot of resistance. We chatted about normal developmental behaviors that happen at a meal and how it can look like food rejection and not eating things, but it's actually a part of the natural process of learning to like novel or new foods or different foods and to incorporate them in a regular way. And There are many negative behaviors that can play out, but I just sort of said, hey, give me a ring if that's happening. Because there can be so many different variations of what looks like negative or abnormal. And so I always feel like it's better to just play it out in a one-on-one scenario. And then the exceptions to the rule when we're outside the home and when we're not in the comfort of our own home or at our own family table. Um, how do we manage that? And for the most part, we just treat it like a learning opportunity. And then we just balance it out by really maintaining that division of responsibility and making good choices as parents and feeders when we are in the home, because we're in control of that. Lastly, I just want to talk about making repairs because obviously, ideally, you learn about the division of responsibility when your kids, before your kids are born or when they're breastfeeding and bottle feeding and when you've gotten in, before you've gotten into all the intricacies of feeding foods to our children. 
But most of us, that's not, you know, that's ideally the case, but for most of us, not, that's not the reality. Most of us find out about the division of responsibility long after our children are eating. And so just a reminder that any crossing of that, the lines of the division of responsibility, it's all fixable. It's all very, very, very fixable. The older your children are, the longer it can take, but that doesn't mean that it's not reparable. For many of my patients, I'll recommend, you know, if they're really young children, you can just start to implement the division of responsibility without talking about it. But if they're preschool or older, I generally suggest that you acknowledge the fact that you're doing something different. You set them down and you acknowledge what it is you've been trying to do. Like I've been trying to get you to eat more vegetables or I've been trying to get you to sit at the table or I've been trying to get you not to eat so much sugar and it hasn't been working. Like things have not been working. And so I am going to try something new. And then you lay out the division of responsibility, what you're responsible for, what they are responsible for, what regular meals and planned snack times are going to look like. And within that, what you're going to do and what they're going to do. And then you go from there. And yeah, it's a little bit easier with younger kids. Older kids take takes a little more time to start to shift those behaviors, but they will shift. Um, and last thing I'm going to say is, especially if there's been an issue with cro- the crossing of that division of responsibility line when it comes to certain foods or amounts of food, if you happen to have a child that is preoccupied with food or compulsive with food, um, or there are some other vegetables, um, or sorry, other vegetables, there can be some other issues like trying to force your kids to eat more vegetables and they're resisting it. Problems like this will often get worse before they get better. Meaning you put the division of responsibility in place and you let your children decide if and how much. And obviously, if they're allowed to decide if and how many vegetables they eat and they've been feeling forced and pressured to eat them for years, they're going to decide just not to eat them. And what we need to do is white knuckle our way through it (laughs) and get to the point where they really trust us again, that they are really in charge of making the decision. And when they have that assertion, then and only then will they start to um, come around to eating vegetables because it's enjoyable instead of feeling like they're just going to try to exert control. Same with sugar or certain foods that are considered off limits. You know, if you, in one case I had a patient whose daughter was obsessed with cereal because they were really limiting the amount of cereal that she could eat. And so the prescription was basically like put cereal on the table every single day for breakfast and let her eat as much as she wants at breakfast time. And um, it took, it takes often four to eight weeks depending on the age of the child, but they will slow down. And she did. And it's a beautiful thing because it's not coming from the parents. It's coming from her. And it is a behavior that will persist even when adult eyes are not on her. And so we're really dissipating the power of food and preventing long-term food preoccupation and compulsive eating. So that's it, you guys. Oh my God, five episodes, so much information, so much food for thought. And I just want to say thank you for being here. It is a leap of faith and it takes a strong will to jump into a new idea or a new way of feeding our children, but it's so worth it. You know, high stress, high reward it can be. Um, changing the way you feed can, can require you changing the way you eat and the way you approach food. And that's a scary thing. Um, but thank you. Thank you for being open to it, for 
um, sticking with me through the five episodes and I hope you've learned something. I'm, I would love feedback. Hello at foodfreedombodylove.com. I'm here for feedback. I'm here if you need help. I'm here if you want to book a session. Um, my sessions are, uh, they, they look a little bit expensive, but they're 75 minutes and they include some email follow-ups because parents generally need some support after those sessions in order to get through. There's often little things that pop up. So they actually are really high value for the amount of support you get for me, um, for one of those sessions. And I would love to work with you if you are interested, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. If you're listening to this through iTunes, share it with someone, you know, who might be interested And last but not least, stay tuned for the next series, which will likely happen after the holidays sometime in the winter. Thanks again so much for being here. Um, And until then, happy feeding, happy eating.